You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse is at it again with a new line of lace-up hunting boots, the Navigator Series. And in that Navigator Series, there are two models. There's the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. To find out more information about this new Navigator Series, visit lacrossefootwear.com. Hey, Steve, the weather is still way too hot here. We're going to be in the 80, high 80s, low 90s with high humidity. But I'm still thinking about the upcoming hunting season. I'm seeing a lot of tech questions coming up on some of our electronic training equipment out there uh, from people that are that are bear hunting. They're in full swing with bear, bear training season right now across the United States. Have you been seeing that a lot on social media? I have. You know, I've been thinking myself about getting up to the mountains of Virginia and doing a little training myself. And, uh, yeah, you know, when technical questions come up, uh, the the normal reaction is call customer service at the uh, equipment manufacturers. And sometimes that can involve a long wait on the phone. Uh, Our friends at W Hunting Supply have great tech support. And I'm told if you call up there... uh, that Jason will get on the phone with you and, and get to the root of your problem right away. So uh, if I have a problem with my equipment this fall, that's what I'm going to do. Sounds like a great idea. And Jason's going to be with us at the upcoming major Coonhound event or hound event of the United States Autumn Oaks. So he's going to be in the booth with us. So you can stop by our booth, pick up all your Houndsman XP logo wear and also pick Jason's brain about any questions you might have about your Garmin or Dogtra or whatever whatever platform you're using there to track your hounds. Absolutely. Uh, w Hunting Supply is a one-stop shop for everything the houndsman needs. Uh, they're online at www.dusupply.com. This is a Houndsman XP podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. Welcome to the Houndsman XP Podcast, and we have got a exciting show for you today. We've got Steve Fielder on the line, of course, and we've got Chris Todd from Kingman, Arizona. How are you today, Steve? Chris, I can't uh, say that I've ever been any better. I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while. I, this is a guy that I kind of went out there and rooted out of the uh uh, the pages of, of Facebook and watched his videos and and uh, read his stories. And I said, man, if we can lasso this thing, we will have a great show. And so I'm really uh, doing good down here and looking forward to our uh, our program today with Chris Todd. 
Well, uh, you may not be, be doing any better today, but you've been you've definitely been better looking, Steve. I can tell you that. <laughs> you know, uh, Todd, I have to put up with this all the time. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he told me he told me the other day that I had a great face for ro- uh, radio. Now, can you imagine? <laughs> that? You know, when I when I was raised, uh, you know, these younger guys were were expected to be seen and not heard, but I I can't uh, I don't know I I can't make excuses for him. He's just the best I've got. So <laughs> it's kind of like a hound, you know. <laughs> no, Chris and I go back a long time. We've had we have a great great time together, and of course, all part of that is giving each other a hard time. But it sure is good to have you on board today with us. Uh, Chris, and, uh, and this is going to get confusing for the the listeners, and I may call you Todd from time to time, uh, just to make sure uh, that Chris Powell doesn't jump in and grab your line or what. No doubt. <laughs> I saw that I saw that review on Facebook the other day where the game warden needs to talk less. So <laughs> I thought that that one made my day. I'm telling you, so. Some guy said he really enjoyed the po- the podcast, but the game warden needs to talk. Try to see if you can get the game warden to talk less. I yeah. thought that was pretty funny. But uh, yep. Well, Steve, I'm going to hand this off to you and let you run with it. You you lasso this uh, extreme houndsman in here and talked him into being on the podcast. So I'm going to let you run with this one. Well, you I'll know, just chime in when I need to. Okay, buddy. Well, you know, it's great when you can pick up the phone and call somebody that you've never spoken to before and find a, a person that's just uh, uh, very welcoming and, and ready to talk. And I think that's pretty much describes most of us in this hound fraternity. Uh, we like to talk dogs. We like to meet other hunters. And this podcast is is really been great in that respect and uh so i did i called up uh chris todd i don't know that he ever heard of me and uh uh and he was uh very willing to talk and uh uh so we just i think we're going to have a great conversation today chris what i'd like for you to do uh for our listeners is just tell us a little bit about who chris todd is where you're from where you are now, how you got there kind of thing. Just a little uh, a little background information, if you don't mind. Okay, well, um, I was born in Dayton, Ohio, so a long way from where I'm at right now in Kingman, Arizona. But uh, my family uh, moved. Actually, we spent a year in L.A., and uh, thankfully we moved over here to uh, Arizona after a year in L.A. And um, as, a, as a young man or young kid my dad and mom took me hunting all the time i mean we hunted everything and up until i was uh probably when i was a senior in high school i never really thought a whole lot about hunting with hounds and um i had two real good friends in high school that are still real good friends of mine and are still really good line hunters to to this day and uh we all uh you know we got together started line hunting and uh i caught my first line or actually seen my first line there when I was a senior in high school and uh it just took off from there you know and um I just 
I don't know. It just grew and grew from there, and pretty soon I didn't care if I hunted anything but uh, hunted mountain lions and hunted with dogs. And of course, we did. We did at that time. We we raccoon hunted quite a bit, and I was never any kind of a bear hunter. But uh, we did a lot of raccoon hunting, and um, gradually I phased that out and just got to where the only thing I wanted to do is chase mountain lions. Well, and, you know, uh, my, yeah. Well, my experience with lion hunting has been in the pages of some really good books. Uh, read The Slash Ranch Hounds by Dub Evans. Yeah. Uh, read uh, books by like Montague Stevens. Read the Lee Brothers books. I read books by the uh, by Ozzie Washburn. Uh, different people down through the years that, uh, uh, you know, and, and read these great stories of of uh, lion hunting uh, with hounds on horseback and and uh, the pictures, uh, mental pictures that these riders were able to create just uh, were just fascinating to me. And I think that's uh, one of the things that drew me to contacting you was the, uh, the stories that you uh, were telling. Let me back up there just a little bit. Which came first for you, the lion hunting or the, or the coon hunting? Uh, actually, the coon hunting did. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was first, and, and I got to say, I really enjoyed it. You know, I mean, I loved it. I mean, it was great. But uh, uh, after uh, lion hunting a while, seeing some lions, that just nothing else, you know, nothing else mattered to me. That was it, you know, and and you're, you're talking about, you know, the great writers and stuff and, of uh, books, Del Lee in particular. Uh, when I was young, I'll oh, shoot, I was probably wasn't 20 years old. We'd done some snow hunting. And me and a buddy were out snow hunting one day, and, and we hadn't found nothing. We went by a store in Cortis Junction, which is a little town there in central Arizona. And there was an article in Outdoor Life uh, promoting Del Lee's book. And um, I read that. And actually, I was driving, and my friend, he kept wanting to take the wheel. He's like, well, if you need to read that so bad, he said, well, won't you let me drive? I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm okay, I'm okay. And, hey, you uh, sound, after re- sound, it sounds like my wife when I'm looking at my phone <laughs> when, when I'm driving. She said, she reaches over and grabs it and takes it away from me. So. Yeah, you know, and the thing for me was I read that, and, of course, I, I'd heard of George Goswick and Giles Goswick. They were just the best lion hunters in the state of Arizona. And I just always thought, you know, because we snow hunted, you know, that's how I got my start. And uh, we caught lions in the snow. And I just always thought, how the heck are these guys going out on a horse, turning their dogs loose and going out in the mountains and finding a lion and catching it. And I just thought, I just, I don't understand that. You know, how you can do that. Well, you know, there were a lot of people doing it naturally, but for me, you know, and the guys I knew, we were all snow hunters, you know, and I just couldn't, couldn't fathom being able to do that, you know? And so after reading that with Dale Lee, I was like, I, that's what I got to do. I got to do that. I got to figure out how to do this. And, uh, it went on from there, you know? Well, the Lee brothers hunted mostly down towards Tucson or that's where their home base was anyway. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, actually Clell Lee had a, a, a ranch later over in the Alpine area. And then, uh, uh, Dale, his home was basically was in the Tucson area, but, uh, yeah, as far as Arizona is concerned, they, they did hunt that Southern Arizona quite a bit. Now, didn't they hunt or at, at one time was not, uh, Dale's address blue Arizona. 
Uh, yeah, that's yeah, right by Alpine. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. with quail. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, cool. Well, um, so you were coon hunting as a as a young man. How old were you at that that stage in your life, Chris? You know, I think the last time I went coon hunting, I was probably around about twenty five, somewhere in that neighborhood. I got you. And what do- what kind of dogs were you hunting on coon at that time? Well, you know, I had a variety, but, you know, I started out, um, I didn't know what I had when I was young yet. And I spent 27 years working for AT&T. So I just always didn't have the time to really breed dogs. And I look back on it now and I could kill myself for, because I made friends with, uh, uh, Bobby Reeves was his name. He was real good friends with, uh, the Goswicks. And so I got some dogs through him and, uh, he also had some Adele Lee's or actually Clell Lee's stuff later some of Dale Lee's dogs and I got dogs from him out of that and uh, I coon hunted with those dogs too and some of them were really good coon dogs and I just never bred those dogs because I just didn't you know I didn't have the time basically you know I was working full-time and uh, had had a family to support so I just didn't uh, have the time to, to worry about breeding dogs and like I say, I look back on it now and just kick myself all the bloodline that I let go, you know, that I never really right. bred. And well, uh, some of the, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm just going to say some of those were really good coon dogs. I had one that was uh, about three quarter the old Goswick blood that was called Bonaparte. Bonaparte came from Bobby Reeves and Bobby had had him on about 30 lines. And I got him and he caught a bunch of lines for me and he ended up getting killed by a line, which was, you know, that was a rough day there. But anyway, he was the best coon dog I've ever hunted with in my life. And I was hunting with guys that had good coon dogs. And I mean, he would catch coons out in front of dogs. You just run off and leave dogs and treat coons like you just wouldn't believe. He was a super dog, you know. And uh, he did, he was just really good. And then my spike dog that I talked a little bit about on Facebook, he came right after that. And that's in the neighborhood of when I quit coon hunting altogether. But uh, Spike was the same. He was from Bobby Reeves with a lot of that Goswick blood and uh, just a super dog, super dogs. Okay. There's so many questions here that I have. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Goswick, Goswick, tell me more about them, who they were, where they were from, and and, uh, just kind of give our listeners. We get a lot of requests, especially from people back east. Chris that want to know more about this Western hunting and they like I did with reading the stories to find it very fascinating so for their benefit and mine I'd like to uh, to hear more about some of these old lines of dogs and these breeders well now uh, Giles Goswick which was George's dad and they uh, George or Giles I'm sorry and his brother established a ranch in Mayor Arizona and when they did that, they were right on the base of the Bradshaw Mountains. Well, they had a terrible time with lions there, killing their, killing calves like crazy. So this was back in the late 1800s. And they developed a strain of dogs there to catch lions in that country. And uh, George continued that until his death, you know, which he, I'm not sure when George passed. It was like, you know, I'm probably wrong about this, around the 1990s, you know. And... Uh, so those dogs were developed for specifically for catching line in Arizona, you know, in dry, tough conditions. And, uh, you know, 
they they definitely did the job, you know, really did the job well. And actually, if if you look through records, you know, records that are kept by, you know, the state of Arizona, Giles caught more lines than anybody in the state of Arizona, period. You know, back when they paid bounty on him, he was the, he was top guy, you know. And uh, so, you know, he was just, a, they were just another family that developed hounds for that. You know, there's also the Glens, uh, the Lee brothers, the Lee brothers, you know, didn't really have that much of a strain of dogs as the Goswicks did. They had their own strain of dogs, you know, and that's, that's all they wanted. That was that strain of dogs, period. They wouldn't hunt nothing else. So did they breed true? Did they breed true to type? I mean, could you look at a dog and tell that it was a Goswick bred dog? Not really. No, because, uh-huh. you know, a lot of these uh, dogs out here, you know, from one family of dogs to the other, you know, a lot of them are uh, red tick, blue tick type dogs. And, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of them just look a lot alike. I mean, I look wise, you know, to look at, look at them, you, you put from one strain to the next, it's pretty hard to tell them apart. I see. I see. As far as just looking at them. Okay. Now you were going to say next, uh, besides the Goswicks, were you going to mention another, another family of dogs there or, or family of hunters or, or did I? Well, no, no. No, no, I no, I just did. I I did mention, you know, the Glens. They they did their own thing. Marvin and Warner, they did their own thing. They're in uh, Douglas, Arizona, far south Arizona, and uh, you know they. That's all I was saying. Different families or really ranching families developed strains of dogs to to hunt in their country to catch, you know, cattle killing mountain lions, basically. You know. Very interesting. Well, so uh, hey, let me, uh, Chris, I'm going to ask this one quick question I yep. wanted to ask a minute ago. Were these dogs good tree dogs when you hunted them on coon? Yeah, excellent. I mean, the ones that I had, my uh, Bonaparte dog, my Spike dog, I mean, they were super good tree dogs. They were dogs that, you know, I could, you know, I named several times when, you know, it took me all day to get to a tree. You know, that was back. Matter of fact, a lot of that was back before we had beep beep collars. You know, we just had to hunt for dogs and find them, you know, no, no tracking collars at all. And, uh, so the dogs, you had to have dogs that would stay there and wait for you. And, uh, both of those dogs, especially that spike dog had real loud chop on him, you know, I mean, just real loud. And I mean, you could hear him for, you know, you get up on a high point and listen and you could just hear him, you know, from a couple miles away, chop, chop, you know, chopping away. And, so, you know, you'd have him located, and uh, they were ex- they were just excellent tree dogs, real good. Were they, Even on coon, you know, yeah. that night. Well, when we talk about coon versus lion, I would think the locating tree dog that we talk about out east out here for coon hounds that's able to, to locate that tree, you know, and tree on scent as opposed to sight. Now, were they good, yeah. lo- what yeah. we would call locating tree dogs as well? Yeah, they were. Yeah, Um that's, that is true. You know, you, you hit on something there that, you know, I've seen in my own dogs and, uh, you know, especially when you're hunting, um, country like I'm in right here, just all low cedar country. So when dogs come up on them, they're going to be looking at them more likely. So, you know, they're just sight treeing, you know? Right. And so you don't know if, if I sell somebody a puppy or I sell somebody an older dog and I've gone through this, some of my, some of my older dogs, and I'll usually tell people that dogs are only used to really sight treeing. 
And if I'm selling to somebody who's hunting, you know, ponderosa pine, well, I don't know how good they're going to treat, you know, and I, I'll tell mm-hmm. people that. And most of them do, it takes them a few lines to start locating, you know, because like I say, they're used to just trailing right up to them and looking at them, you know, and we, we bay a lot of lines here on the ground, you know, so right. I, I think a lot of guys and probably myself included the, you know, and I know coon hunters, the treeing uh, trait or aspect is super important, you know, and to guys that hunt in country like this, well, you know, through the years, it gets to where it's not that important to you, you know, because, you know, your dogs, you know, you just aren't locating in tall pine trees and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's something you got to think about, you know, that, you know, that treeing aspect. And I've had dogs, I've treed, uh, like during the summer, I'll hunt a lot in tall timber to get, you know, where it's a little bit cooler. And uh, I'll tree lines, and my dogs don't tree that good. But they'll, you know, they'll get the hang of it if you catch a couple lines, and they'll start locating and treeing better. But it's, they're just not used to that. You know, they're used to just looking, mm-hmm. basically looking right at a line. When they trail up to it, they're treeing, you know. Right. So it, it well, is definitely different, a lot of difference. Yeah, yeah, we encounter that out east, and I see this with the, my breed, the plot breed of, of dogs not being the tree dogs that the old line plots that we had were. Uh, because bear are much more plentiful now, it's very easy to strike a bear track. Many times it's a hot track. Uh, the dogs, you know, uh, are are bred for speed and to catch, and uh, they're many times they're watching that bear go up that tree. So naturally, yeah, they yeah. tree. But uh, you know, the, the that locating treeing instinct is just. Uh, Something that I often wondered about those uh, those Western dogs. Did you have something, Chris? Yeah. I, no, no. I, 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 oh, uh, I'm sorry. Chris <laughs> Powell. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. It's a Chris and Chris show. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you know, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit there, Chris Todd. Uh, about breeding br- true to type because I'm looking at your Facebook page right here and you posted a picture of three generations of lion hounds and if I couldn't pick those three those three hounds <laughs> out of yeah you know, those three that you've got listed right there just by looking at them I'm not much of a houndsman because I see a lot of similarities there in their build their head shape uh, things like that but uh, I also wondered about uh, if you're being pretty consistent there on your, on your type as well. So do you want to revisit that or we, we shine that tree enough? Well, um, now I, I think I know the picture you're talking about. It's, uh, of a, uh, actually, uh, grandpa, son and grandson, I believe. And actually, yeah. I, if I could add my original scout to that, uh, photo that before dogs, there look an awful lot alike. And, yeah. um, yeah. I, I have my, myself personally, those are the, I, I breed for a certain type of dog. I do personally. And um, mm-hmm. so my dogs do, I could have some females to those that would look just like them too, you know. But uh, yeah. I've made some crosses on some dogs that would look nothing like them, you know. And the, I think what I found myself, I started believing that I was just getting too close with because the blood that I had was real very limited the amount of blood that i had of the the old goswick blood was so limited of what i had that 
I started crossing out to a few other things, you know, and I made a cross into uh, one Cameron male dog that just threw me some excellent dog. I mean, some really good hounds. And uh, so some of them dogs, I believe the blue dog in that picture, he does have a little bit of that Cameron blood in him. That's where the blue tick came from in my dogs is from the Cameron blood. And uh, so some of the crosses I've made, I crossed on um, a uh, Jeff Allen male. Jeff Allen's got an excellent strain of line hounds in southern Utah, northern Arizona. And I crossed on one male of his, and I got, and he has walker dogs. So they kind of threw, you know, some dogs that look more walker looking than my dogs do. They're, they're completely different looking than my dogs are. Even, well, now I'm on that cross, I'm down to three quarter my, my blood and a quarter Jeff's blood now. And they're starting to look more and more like my dogs again, the old strain of my dogs. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's just according to the cross that I make, you know, as the, how they're looking. But those three males sitting there together are all real, um, real heavy on that, that goswick breeding. All three of those males are. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they look quite a bit alike, you know. The, the follow-up to that is I'm curious about what you're, what you're talking about uh, as far as characteristics of dogs. I'm, I'm curious on your opinion. So is it is a dog's ability to track in dry ground in the condition you're at in Kingman? And I, I passed through that country last year, and it was extremely rocky. Uh, not a lot of high trees anywhere that I saw. And I'm curious about is a dog's ability to track more about his ability to discriminate track scent and what i mean by that is if i if i take if you take a dog from back east here and he's got the desire to hunt and he's got the brains to decipher what that that scent is telling him can he can he tree a lion or do you feel like that that you need to have a dog that's that's bred specifically from your country for what for your conditions that you're hunting in well, I'm just going to tell you my opinion, okay? <laughs> That's what I, I'm wanting. Uh, I believe that, okay, if, if we take uh, two puppies, one of them is strictly out of my blood, and one of them is out of the world champion coonhound. I believe you have a better chance with mine than you will with the world champion coonhound. But at the same time, I believe, like with older dogs, they have to acclimate to how dry it is here, number one. I mean, it's just... It, you can't believe how dry it is here, you know, and it dries, you know, if you get a lot of rain, give it a week and it's just going to be dust. So I think um, I've had a lot of guys come and hunt with me from uh, northern states, uh, Wyoming, Idaho, Utah, where they snow hunt. That's all they do. And they're, they're catching a bunch of lines and they'll come down here and their dogs won't, will not trail a lick. They won't strike a line track. They won't start a line track. They won't join in. They won't nothing on a line track. They won't do it. So I think it's a lot of it is a dog acclimating to how dry it is here more than anything else. And, you know, those dogs know what a line is because, you know, like I say, they're on about 30 lines a year. But it's just so much different, you know, as far as trailing conditions that, you know, it'll make, you know, it'll make really good dogs look bad. And I'm not saying there's anything in the world wrong with those dogs because there's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with them other than that they're just not used to how dry it is here. They're not used to trailing in real dry conditions. So, yeah, you know, 
bringing a coon dog out here, uh, say a trained coon dog, I think he'd have a lot of a lot of problems here. You know, trailing the line, I really do. Well, I and, had some. Yeah, Chris, I had similar problems back in the 69 and 70 when I was stationed in West Texas. And I brought a coon, a plot dog, a young dog that was had no trouble trailing out in, in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia and West Virginia. But when I brought him out to West Texas to the dry condition, um, we used the term he was kind of like a lost ball in high weeds when it came yeah. to trailing, but he <laughs> yeah. did as time, as that year went on, he got better at it. So I think what you're saying is a dog basically can learn to do this, which gets into a whole different discussion and something that I wrote about recently that, uh, I, I think, you know, that a, most dogs, uh, have a, basically the same ability to smell, but they may not have uh, trained their brains uh, or or may not be intelligent enough to trail under those kind of conditions. And I know that's a whole uh, whole different subject for another day. And we've kind of gotten off my outline here, but this is great. Let's just pursue this a little bit. How What would be your profile of the ideal dry ground lion hound? Describe that animal for us. Okay, you know, I'll go way back to when I first started. And uh, and people telling me, you know, okay, this is what the ideal lion hound is. You set him down on a line track, and he just pounds away at that track an inch by inch if he has to. Just, you know, basically walking on that track and raising his head and booing at the sky. And, you know, just, you know, that's that's the way a lion dog is. Well, I found out when I, after I had i got some of that gossip blood i think i put somewhere on facebook how owning those dogs changed the way that i looked at everything because i could you know i'd take the originally my bonaparte dog was my older dog that i had a, a lot of that blood and you put him on a line track and i mean he just would literally compared to other dogs he would just fly down a track and the thing about the dog was when it came to say you'd make a lose on a track, you know, lose the track, he was usually the dog that would find it again because he was an active hunter. And uh, he, at the same time, he had a super good nose on him. He could out cold, tra cold trail most dogs too. Even the dogs that are, you know, the ones that are, you know, you watch them walking up a track and think, boy, that dog's got a super cold nose and this and that, that dog would just run off and leave them. And so I talking to a few people that knew the Goswicks and Bobby Reeves being one of them, it, it changed everything that I, I thought, you know, in Arizona, a lot of the year, by the time noon rolls around uh, 12 o'clock in the morning, by the time that rolls around, it's too hot to trail anymore. And their thought always was that the best thing you could do is have a dog with a lot of speed and try to get that line caught before it got so hot. They couldn't go anymore. So in other words, you know, they, you want to breed for a dog that has, you know, can, as much distance on that line track as possible before he can't go anymore, before it just gets so hot. You know, when, you know, once it gets so hot, there ain't a dog alive that just can't, you know, they can't continue to trail. So that speed is just really important to me. The dog that can really get up and move a track and is real active on a track. I mean, just, you know can really fly on a line track, basically, you know. And I found out 
you know, it, oh, I've got some videos that I guess, you know, I should have probably left on Facebook to show people my, my dog's trailing a little bit more, but they, you know, I've got, I had one video. I hunted a desert mountain range over here by Kingman, Arizona. I worked over there for the game and fish for uh, three years. And I had a, a female line that we were after. And uh, I had nine, nine female dogs. And they trailed out on like an open hillside where you could see them. And I, I mentioned in the, uh, the uh, video, that's the way I like to see my dogs. Just like a bunch of swarm of bees looking for a line track. They lost the track and they're just going everywhere trying to find that track, you know, to keep it moving. And to me, that's just real important when you're hunting on dry ground. You got to have dogs that can move a track. And uh, so that's, that's one thing. And uh, of course, they need to be super tough, good, tough footed dog, you know, just. And the way I hunt, I've got two packs of dogs. So I hunt them every other day. And uh, normally I don't have too many problems with sore footed dogs because uh, I do hunt them every other day. Now, two years, uh, not this past spring, but the spring before, I hunted 90 out of 92 days. I hunted. And so I had... That's, I had that's to pretty dedicated there, Chris Todd. <laughs> I had to divide my dogs into three packs because they did start getting, they started getting worn down and get sore-footed, you know, from hunting that much. But, uh, you know, and... I don't worry too much about the voice on a dog. A lot of my dogs are chop mouth dogs and I really don't care. You know, that doesn't matter. I know a lot of guys like ball mouth dogs and that just doesn't matter to me. Um, I like good cold trailing dogs. Uh, the thing about hunting, especially where I'm at right now is that there's not that many lines here. You know, I mean, they're just, they're just not, I mean, you can't say you cut a track today hunting. You can't just, you know, if your dogs can work it at all, you got to try to catch that line because you can't count on going down the road a little ways and finding a fresher track. You just can't, you know, mm -hmm. so you got to have dogs that got a nose on them. And a lot of what that does for me is if, if I can strike a line track and dogs can put, let's say five miles on this track trail today, it tells me where that line is going or it gives me a good chance to know where I should go tomorrow to have a chance to catch that line and so I go the next day and hopefully pick him up and catch him the next day or there you go pick him up and put another five miles on him and keep trying to go until I can catch up to him and uh, that's where the really good nose dogs come in right there so well, I've got a I've got a follow-up and I, I kind of want to take us back to this nose question because it's it really is one of the most common things that I see from these hound hunting groups on social media or the old days of, of uh, chat groups about gauging the nose in a hound. And I was a, I was a canine handler for seven years for the state of Indiana. And so we, we actually tested these dogs under different conditions. We would see, I had, I had a, a dog that, that, uh, I had a dog that would, would trail after 12 or 13 hours on some occasions. If I laid that track in the evening, had a person go out and lay a track in the evening, he would, and I would let that thing rest overnight, and I'd come back the next morning and run it like it was red hot. But if I ran that on short grass or dry conditions in the conditions we've got here now, you know, 30 minutes later or 20, uh, 45 minutes later, I could not run that track. And so I think there's a lot of times when houndsmen don't know what the definition of 
cold nosed is or you know how nose actually works and i was just really excited to hear your opinion on on the different conditions the different scenting conditions because you are hunting in extreme conditions down there so that was the reason why i brought you to that yeah and and you're right there because um i i i don't believe like me I mean, I can tell you, you know, I strike a line track and I say it's a two-day-old line track. Heck, I don't know, you know. I, I'm just guessing, you know, because I don't, I don't know for sure when that line walked through. But I'm just looking at how my dogs are trailing and working, you know. And uh, now I've had tracks where I'll leave off at dark, you know, and the dogs won't be moving very good, and I'll leave off at dark, come back the next day with another pack of dogs and pick it up and just keep going like, you know, like I was the day before, you know, just keep right on going. So, you know, and I, so I know that track is another at least 12 hours older or actually 24 hours old, older than when I originally struck it, you know, but yeah, it, it's hard to, to judge. Like when you're in dry country like this, you can look at a line track in the sand and you can say, you know, it's just hard to judge looking at that. I can't track, even imagine. You know? I can't even imagine trying to decide for that track. That's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's, seeing it's, that it's a guess. You know, around here, I mean, you you look at the amount of moisture that comes out of the, the ground and the cracks that are around it, and you know, I'm talking about law enforcement canine tracking. You got to have a few tracking skills to do that before you put your dog in there. But out there in that sand, you know, where you can preserve that that track for until it rains again and you'll never know how old yeah. it is <laughs> well yeah. Yeah, like, the only gauge you have is your dog's reaction to it yeah exactly you're right that's all you can go by is how your dogs react to it how they trail it that's all you can go by that's it well what about um we've talked about the hound that you like what what are some of the things that you can't tolerate in a dog, I, you know, uh, you start a puppy out. I guess we should start there. Well, uh, at what age do you start your pups, uh, Chris? Well, normally because of, you know, we're riding, um, norm, I probably average near 20, 22 miles a day on a horse. And so, you know, this country is pretty rough. It's hard on a dog. And, and I believe, and I've told people this before, and I really believe this, that you can ruin a dog by starting them too early because what happens i think you get on them real long hard rides and you wear a puppy out and he just doesn't you know he's going to end up not wanting to go you know you're just going to ruin him so i normally i like to wait as close to a year as i possibly can but uh you know and it seems to me like with the dogs i have now uh my female dogs seem to be faster starting dogs and they seem to be able to take the hunting earlier than the male dogs can and and one good example of that i've got is a little female i have now i call freckles and um freckles when she was uh five months old she just she was driving me crazy because i was loading up and going hunting every day and i'd let her run around i'd let her hop in the box you know hop in the back of the truck and you know just kind of getting her ready to start hunting well then i would throw her back in her pen and she was howling and screaming and just having a fit and I've got problems with neighbors as it is right now and already, so I didn't need that every morning, you know. So I thought, well, you little son of a gun, you, you know, she's about five months old. I said, well, let's just go then. I'm going to take you, you know, and I really, you know, I hate taking them that little, but she's real athletic, and I thought she can take it, you know. 
Well, naturally what happens is you take a puppy like that and you get on probably the toughest hunt you've been on your whole life, you know. And uh, <laughs> we, we went uh, south of where I'm at here. To There's a peak down here called Austin Peak. And you can see Austin Peak off of I-40. And it is one bad son of a gun. I mean, it's ringed by about, oh, the bluffs are two, 300 feet high all the way around it, you know. And uh, we run that line, uh, started the line. The track was real tough. And I'm not going to say she was helping a whole lot when it was tough, you know. But she um, she went with the dogs the whole way. And, and they went out and topped out on that Austin Peak and had the line bait on top of that mountain. And uh, so I ended up having to hike up there. You can't ride a horse up there. I had to hike up to her, and there she is just baying away on this line, you know. So I thought, well, great, you know, five months old. You know, maybe we got the tough one out of the way. Well, her day came to hunt again in two days, and I go down to uh, Wikiup, which is out in the desert south of me, and uh, we get after another Tom. And this Tom won't stop. I mean, he just will not. He would let me get within, oh, 50, 60 yards, and he'd take off running again. And even my old dogs were, they were about ready to faint. So I was yelling and screaming at them, trying to just stop them because, you know, days I hunt by myself, I'm not going to kill a lion anyway, unless I'm getting paid to do it by, you know, doing depredation work or whatever. But I wasn't getting paid, so I was just trying to stop them. And I got them stopped, and they're all laying on the ground, just, you know, about ready to faint. And there's that puppy right in the middle of them. <laughs> cool son of a gun. So she's gone ever since starting at five months and that's definitely older or younger than i care to start a dog you know and uh you know and the opposite of that is i've got two males here that are just bred as good as a dog can get bred as far as i'm concerned and um i started them when they were about 10 months i started taking them hunting two litter mate brothers and uh, they started out like a house of fire like man these are going to be you know a couple of real good ones you know and then they they just tailed off to where they didn't want to hardly do anything anymore and uh, I started thinking, well, I just I started them too too young. Obviously, you know, they're already tired of this stuff, you know. And so, ended up anyway this spring, before I stopped hunting real hard, um, they started they started coming back and going the other way and started doing good again. But it just kind of shows the difference, you know, in in puppies, you know, just what they'll do. And and uh, those females that I, I've found, at least in the dogs I have seem to be able to take the hunting earlier than those males can. And uh, I don't ask me why, you know, but that just seems to be the way it is. But uh, I try to let them mature enough to where I think they can take a real hard day of riding, you know, without affecting them. So, you know, one of the things that how I decide when to start them. <laughs> one of the, one of the things that I think houndsmen, houndsmen by, by rule, you know, they think if they don't have something five to six months old that's getting it done, uh, they're wasting their time. But most police dogs, yeah. I mean, even if you look at the, the, the canines that come over from Germany, a lot of times they're two years old before they, they start any kind of formal training. And I know that, that we did the same thing with, with our dogs. 18 months was was plenty young to put them through the, the rigors of training and uh that's just an interesting uh, concept that you have there, and it kind of validates what a lot of accomplished law enforcement, police training, even even military dog trainers have already learned in this whole thing, Chris. Yeah, well, my main concept or the main thing in my head is that don't expect these young dogs and these puppies to be my best dog when they're a year old. 
because they're not going to be. I give them, I, I give them all, I give them time. And I just, I like to see it in, in phases or stages when they're a year old. I like to see them here when they're two years old. I like to see them here. And then when they're three year old, they ought to be a pretty darn good line dog, you know? And I, I just give them time to get age on them and, and, uh, develop and make a dog you know and i i think a lot of guys expect too much of dogs when they're when they're too young but you know once again that's just my opinion so you know <laughs> well, well let's steve talk. i'm handing yeah. off to you okay well um man this is good stuff um really uh brings up a lot of a uh, lot of questions uh i'm kind of like sitting at a at the feet of a master that's what i feel like chris because you obviously know this uh, this game inside and out, and been a houndsman all my life. And there are aspects of coon and bear hunting that I feel fairly comfortable to discuss. But I'm really enjoying our conversation. Um, let's talk about. Uh, I want to rewind just a little bit. How old were you when you went on your first lion hunt? I was 18 years old. Uh, 42 years ago. I see. What was that like? Can you share that, that experience? Well, you know, actually, uh, I went on, I'm going to try Actually, my earlier hunts weren't that good. You know, we did, we chased a lot of deer, uh, we, uh <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I had some friends that had some good deer chasing dogs and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it took a while to catch my first line. It did. And, uh, um, and I, but I never got frustrated with it because I think I always just loved it out in the mountains and I always loved the dogs. So, but uh, yeah, it well, was, let me you know, let I me thought... jump. Yeah, let me jump in here. Okay, typically out east, out here, a young guy wants to get into coon hunting. First thing he does is go buy a four wheel drive pickup truck. Then he yeah. buys an expensive <laughs> dog box. Then he buys a tracking system. And then he buys uh, boots and waders and and coon squallers and and uh, uh, lights that look like the uh, uh, landing lights on a Boeing Boeing seven twenty seven <laughs> to put on his head. And then about the last thing he thinks about is he better get a dog <laughs> to go with any bargain out. shops. <laughs> any bargain shops yeah. for the dog? <laughs> right. He goes to one of our big events like the Grand American over in Orangeburg, South Carolina, where there's still the old dog trader rose, unfortunately, and he, he's looking for a bargain. Uh, what was, uh, you know, going lion hunting, how was all that process with you? Did you did you get a dog first, a horse first? What did, what did you do? Well, you know, I think I got the dogs first, but I, I, I did bargain shop though. But <laughs> right. I, uh, and, we and all I do. Had, uh, <laughs> I had a couple of friends there in high school that, well, they had dogs that could catch lions in the snow, you know? So if we got out in the snow, we were okay. But if we went on, uh, on dirt, we were chasing deer, you know? So yeah, I did a lot of bargain shopping and, um, I actually, uh, I had, uh, I bought a couple puppies from uh, uh, one guy that were were nice pups, and then I he actually the same guy Bobby Reeves was his name, and I I have to thank Bobby for really uh, getting me started because he sold me a really good dog, pretty cheap. The dog was a bad deer chaser, but if you got him on a line, he could catch a line, you know. And so he got my other dog started, you know, and then I went out from there and, and got better and better dogs, you know, better broke dogs, 
And so actually that really got me started right there, you know, was uh, getting that dog from him that uh, although he ran the deer, he, he could definitely catch a line too. So that really got me going. Okay, from that point, then you decided at, at some juncture along the way that you wanted to do this professionally. How'd that come about? Well, shoot, I, you know, I'll tell you what, I, before I even graduated from high school, I begged my dad. My dad probably thought he'd raised a crazy kid. I begged my dad to buy a place where I could go and just guide hunters. My dad's probably looking at me like, you're a nut, kid. It ain't going to happen, you know? But uh, that, I mean, I wanted to guide from, the time I was a senior in high school, I wanted, that's what I wanted to do was guide. And once I got into the hounds, then I just wanted to guide for mountain lion. That's what I wanted to do, you know, and I've always wanted to, to guide, you know, and, um, I got a, a, a good job with AT&T and, uh, so I stayed there and I, I rode that job out for 27 years, just uh, hating it most days because I wanted to be out lion hunting, you know, and, uh, so, and now I look back on it, it was probably the thing, you know, it was probably meant to be that I, I just stay there and, you know, uh, do my time there. And uh, so I just always wanted to guide hunt, guide hunts, you know, and then of course I wrote, read about Dale Lee and, you know, the stuff he did in his book and never be done by anybody again, but still, you know, I, that made me even more want to just guide hunters, you know, guide and hunt lines. That's all I wanted to do. Well, it was well, from an early age. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege to go out to the PKC organization's youth hunt in Salem, Illinois, and speak to these hunters. These kids qualify throughout the year. It's coon hunting, competition hunting. Uh, but, you know, I see so many young people, they say right away, I want to be a coon hunter. That's what I want to do in life. I want to be a professional handler. I want to, you know, go, go to a coon hunt every night. And I try to tell these kids that get your education, learn a trade or go to college, whichever you choose and get a good job. And then you'll make money to finance that coon hunting habit. Yeah. But if you, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like a kid growing up in the inner city, everyone thinks he's going to play in the NBA, you know, when he, when he gets big enough, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, I think our day we need these day jobs to finance our habit, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me. That's the thing, you know. You you got to figure out a way to make money and pay your bills, you know. And uh, so right. a lot of times the hounds don't do that. So well, that's just the uh, way it is, unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about Todd's guide service. Um, I see you on the internet, and uh, I had the address uh, here. Give me that. Uh, Give me that web address for your website, uh, Todd. It is uh, az in Arizona linehunts.com. Okay, and uh, you typically have a seven-day hunt. Is that right, or or how does yeah, that work? Yeah. No, my uh, normal hunt is a seven-day hunt for uh, any legal line, and um, I know a lot of guys. I get a lot of guys that say they just want to hunt for a trophy tom line. And, uh, so that's good for me. I, you know, the way I set things up, like, uh, that's what I'm hunting for all the time. Anyways, adult Tom lines, that's, you know, you, uh, uh, I go to, I scout different areas and find sign of adult Tom lines. And that's where I guide hunters. I try to catch those adult Tom lines, but, uh, most of the time there's more female lines in an area than there is Tom. So, 
you tree a line and you know i've had several hunters you know uh tell them well that's a female line i mean she's legal because in arizona she can't have uh can't be nursing can't have spotted kittens you know with her accompanying her or she's not legal so you know i tell a hunter yeah she's legal if you want to take her it's not a column line so you know so that's that's basically it just any you know any legal line but then i started the the trophy hunt deal and uh the idea behind that is that, you know, if a guy wants to keep coming back and just trying for a trophy tom, I'll keep taking him until we get a, get him a good trophy tom in a tree for him to take, you know. And uh, so that, that's the only difference in those hunts. But uh, initially they are seven-day hunts. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can get a guy a good line in seven days. And some guys I get a line for, I've, I've caught guys' lines the first hour of the, the hunt, you know, extremely lucky. And some guys I don't catch a line for in seven days. So, you know. Um, right. if, if I do get a guy that just, you know, I get some guys that hard hunting people. I mean, I do, I get some really hard hunting guys that, you know, they just want to kill a big trophy tall. So that's fine well, they, with me. Cause I love to hunt too, you know, so <laughs> we'll just keep hunting, you know, that's fine with me. So okay, that I'm is the guy, difference between the two. Yeah. Well, I'm a guy out here in Florida and I call you up and I say, I want to come out and, uh, and, and try one of these, uh, seven day hunts. What are you going to tell me about gear, conditioning, uh, those types of things? Well, most guys, I'll tell them, you know, any experience you can get riding a horse, get it before you come here. Um, I've got really good horses. They can handle this country, but it's rough country. And the lines, you know, most of the lines that you ever trail, it, it always seems like, you know, you can start a line on a flat mesa somewhere and you're like, oh, this is a piece of cake. Well, that line's going to end up, he's going to find some rough country to go to, you know, and it just always happens. So the more I can ride before he gets here, the better. The more you're used to horses. I've had people that are scared after death of horses come here and hunt. And I've tried to warn them beforehand, you know, <laughs> to, to be as, you know, as horse friendly, basically, you know, well, I guess the way I would put it, be as horse friendly as possible. You know, no horses before you come here, if, you know, if you can. And not uh, to mention, not to mention, you know, you got horses that can handle that country, but if you got hunters that can, that's their butts can handle the horses, that's, that's what I've noticed about, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of riding. It takes, it takes some time to get in riding shape where you're not so stoved up that you can't, you can't walk a few, few miles or, or a hundred yards. You know, I know what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. See that, that's that's something I tell hunters is you're going to get sore unless for some reason we get extremely lucky and catch a line real quick. You're going to get sore. So just have that in your mind to begin with, you know, and I'll tell people, you know, I ride probably a couple hundred days a year. And if I, if I sit, if I'm off the horse for 30 days, let's say, and I ride first couple of days I ride, I'm going to get sore. So, you know, that's what I tell them. Just, you know, have that in your mind that, you come here riding, you're going to get sore. And that's, that's another reason to ride as much as you can before you come here. Okay. So you're a little I, bit more prepared for it. Right. I notoriously have uh, weak knees, bad knees. What, uh, what can you tell me to do to get ready for a, for a hunt out there? Ride a well, mule. that's tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is tough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because your knees are in a bad position sitting in the, the saddle. I mean, you know, that's mm-hmm. just all there is to it, you know, and, and I'll, what I do is, uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll tell a guy before we take off in the morning, if you get sore, you tell me because I, I'm not afraid to walk. I can walk and we can stretch out and then I'll tell them, we can do that every couple of miles if you want, you know, that's fine. And also I'll tell somebody if the hunt goes on, if you would rather hunt out of the truck a day or two, which I do sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll hunt out of the truck and look for tracks out of the truck. Then we can do that a day or two. And I think uh, that's almost we, worse though. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like starting a workout program and then you take, you get sore the first time you do it. And then you take a couple of days off. You don't want to go back to go back to that workout and same way with being in the saddle. You know, if you, sometimes it's, it's even worse to to do that. Sometimes it's better just to, to knuckle under and get back in the saddle yeah. the next day and ride it out. Work through it. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I get a lot of guys that do that. I, I get guys that after the first day they can hardly walk and I'm feeling sorry for them. And, you know, but they keep getting <laughs> in the saddle and hunting and I'm like, okay, you know, great. You know, I mean, that's probably the best thing you can possibly do, you know, yeah, just keep going. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that territory out there. Now, you know, I think all of us have been really, uh, entertained and, and amazed really at these photos of these lying up on a rim rock and a pack of hounds baying it and the lion is swatting at the hounds and snarling and all that kind of stuff. How often do you encounter that kind of situation? Uh, how, where do you stop most of the lions that you, uh, that you get after or is well, there I'd any say, common? Well, the country that I'm in here, probably I bay probably, you know, have bay ups, you know, either on a rock or a ledge or in a cave, probably 50% of the time they don't tree, you know, they're, they're, they're bait up on a rock or whatever. And I've caught some right out in the wide open, you know, dogs will overtake them and you know, the, the fight or whatever you want to call it's on, you know, they're right out in the open. And, uh, so that happens a lot here. I find that uh, as you get up in altitude, you get into tall trees and stuff. I think a lion prefers to climb a tree. But, you know, when you're in country like this with very few trees or they're just short trees and they got a lot of rocks they can hide in or bay up on, then you get a lot of lines that, you know, that's where you end up, you know, dogs looking right at them, you know. And uh, How, about just, injuries? A, How about injuries to your dogs from the lion? How often does that happen? You know, it's pretty rare. Uh, as a houndsman, you got, um, I've had, uh, you know, I've had a couple bad days, you know, where I've lost hounds, but in 40 something years and, um, uh, the, the guys that I've talked to and that I hunt with and stuff, they lose more dogs to, to bluffs and stuff than the actual line themselves, because they'll get mm-hmm. to chasing the line. They'll, They'll just try to go where a line goes, and they can't do it. You know, lines can get around real good. You know, they can leap 20, 30 feet, you know, off of rocks, and dogs try to stay up with them, and they end up falling off, breaking a leg or whatever, you know, getting hurt bad, doing stuff like that. And uh, I've had uh, dogs get hurt uh, with lines falling out of the tree and uh, after they were shot. And I've had a couple dogs. I had one dog at uh, – he got bit pretty bad. The line fell right on top of him and bit him. And that took us a while to get that healed up. And I've had dogs that are real bad to fight. And if the dogs are left loose and that line comes down, they're going to jump on them. And, you know, the fight's going to start. And I've had dogs get hurt like that. So probably the safest thing you can do is try to tire your dogs up. But then 
when you're hunting country like this where there's nowhere to tie them, well, then, you know, you take your chances, you know, hopefully nothing will happen. But uh, in 42 years of hunting, I've, I've had very few, you know, really bad accidents with between lines and dogs. And, and you look at a line and, I mean, if he wanted to, he could, a line could kill a dog pretty easily if he wanted to. But for some reason, they don't seem to have that temperament, you know, to really attack one particular dog and try to kill it. You know, they just don't. Right. Luckily, they just don't do that. Luckily, you know. (laughs) Is a lion, uh, lion's claws or teeth toxic to a dog the way a bear can be? I know uh, we were always concerned when we got the dogs in a wreck on a bear. It seemed like their teeth, especially a bite, uh, there was a danger of infection. Uh, Is that a problem? with lions yeah it is uh pretty bad i had a dog uh i believe two years ago he got bit and i i thought he was paralyzed the lion bit him right where his fangs went right in underneath his spine and i thought he paralyzed the dog and but he didn't he just you know you know the vet showed me the uh x-rays and it looked like somebody shot him with a 38 twice in his back i mean he's had two holes you know holes down underneath his spine you know but that infection took three operations to finally get all of the infection out of him. It was bad. Yeah, it just kept getting infected. And uh, I think with lions, maybe it's bears too, but with lions, uh, it's a lot of the meat that they eat or whatever, right. you know, whatever, right. whatever is on the, the meat that <clears throat> they, uh, and the claws are the same way. I've caught lions that, uh, I, that were on a kill and you pop them claws out and they're full of hair and meat and stuff underneath those claws, you know, and I'm sure if that gets down inside a dog, you know, you're going to have a real bad infection problem, you know? Well, how hard, how hard are the lions on the deer herd there where you live? Well, they're pretty hard on them. We don't, we don't have much of a deer herd here at all, but, uh, you know, and, um, I think our problem here is that, uh, our deer herd is so depressed already so bad that you know i hate to say it but probably pretty much anywhere you got a good line population is they need to be thinned out and i've heard that from a few biologists game fish biologists the same same feeling if you've got a good deer population you can have a good line population but if you've got a, a low population of deer and a good population of line well those deer are never going to come back you know they can't you know because lines just keep killing them you know so here in western Arizona, we, we really don't have a, a real good deer population. We've got one mountain range over here uh, south of Kingman that uh, there's a park on top of it and all that. And the deer, there's a pretty good deer population there. And you can always find lines there because the lines, I don't think you could, I don't think you could kill them off that mountain because lines from, you know, just all around surrounding areas just keep repopulating it, you know, because that's where all the deer are at. They just keep going in there, you know. So... I think that, you know, I really don't think, you know, like, I believe, just like I said, if, you, if you've if you got a good, healthy deer population, you can have a good, healthy lion population at the same time. Chris, I have kind of a follow-up on that. So when they're not depredating on the deer herd, and I say depredating, sh- should actually be predating, preying predating, on the deer yeah. herd. Yep. Yeah. Then, then where do they turn to if they don't have deer to deer to feed on? Well, here we have uh, we have javelina. You know, the little people call them pigs, but they're I guess it's separate from 
they're not really a pig. They're a separate little uh, species of uh, javelina. You know, they're, um, I don't know if you know what a javelina is or not, but you sure, know, they're like sure. a little pig, mm-hmm. you know, sure. about a 40 pound pig. But uh, we have those. Uh, um, I've caught lions that uh, were eating foxes. You know, that's what they were living on was fox. Uh, they got a lot of jackrabbits and then uh, a lot of them turned to cattle, you know, eat, eat range there of cattle, go. calves. And, That's what uh, I was wondering about the predation on on uh, livestock, and you you mentioned about working with fish and game. So I'm just curious how much of your work is actually working with them and and doing line studies and and not only that, but doing some of that depredation work on livestock. Well, the the job I had with them was uh, specific to one mountain range that they were trying to increase the mule deer herd on this one mountain range. And uh, they went in and they replaced all the waters, cattle waters, everything, new waters for uh, so the deer could, you know, uh, could could get better water. And part of that, they they did aerial shoots on coyotes, and they had me hunting mountain lions. And that was the the work I did with them was just killing everything I could kill as far as mountain lions was concerned. And uh, that was off of one mountain range. And uh, now, whether it had an effect or not, probably that actually the building of the waters probably helped more than anything else. But uh, uh, the the thing that really got me, uh, I talked to the ranchers in the country, naturally looking for line sign and stuff, and uh, I found line kills of uh, several really nice buck mule deer, and I showed these ranchers some of the the heads I was finding, and every one of them to a to a rancher told me they've never seen hunters, you know deer hunters in that area kill bucks that nice hmm. and uh, yeah. so that kind of tells you you know them lines are right in there i mean shoot they're finding they're finding really good muley bucks to kill the lines are but the uh, reason i asked so- that question the reason i asked that qu- question chris is because you know we've got a it goes back to this old adage of stop killing our own you know the work you're doing there and i'm talking about among sportsmen here you know People need to support Chris Todd in northeastern Arizona, or I'm sorry, northwest Arizona, that that's out there working for fish and game to try to bring these deer herds back. You know, deer deer hunting, no doubt, is the largest uh, economical impact on our hunting sports right now, and we need to respect the work that the houndsmen are doing across the country for an actual government agency like Arizona Fish and Game to to help restore the habitat and the predator prey ratios there. And I, I think it's, I think it's an important point to bring up. Yeah. You know, and in that area there, our hunt here in Arizona is on the draw, you know, where you have to put in for hunts, you know, to get right. drawn even for deer. And that mm-hmm. area there went from like 750 tags down to 250 or something like that. That's how bad the, you know, the deer are just crashed. And so they were you know, really to their credit, we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, different ways to bring that deer herd back. And that's actually, I worked for them until this past, about a year ago, that, that contract I had with them expired. And so I'm sure it'd take a while to uh, see if we had any effect at all on the uh, line population or on the deer herd there. But uh, like I said, I believe the, the uh, actually rebuilding all the waters probably helped more than anything else. Cause you know, as deer need, we're in desert country, then deer need water. And uh, it's been so dry in Arizona. We've been in a drought now for, I don't know, I say about 15 years or whatever. So um, there's not a lot of water anywhere for them. 
So hopefully we did some good, you know. It's uh, something that will probably take well, a few years for them to figure out. The rebuilding of the water source plus, you know, putting that predator-prey ratio in check is certainly going to help the deer herds there. So it's it's all part of a big orchestrated dance to uh, for the benefit of all wildlife. And I, even though even though water is premium, predators need water too. So I'm sure they're they are thriving on that water source. And I just thought it was important to showcase that work you're doing out there to reduce some of the predator con, uh, predator numbers on the prey. Well. So, Along that line, uh, Chris Todd, uh, how many deer would a, a mountain lion kill in a year or a month or whatever, would you say? Well, see, every study the Game and Fish has done has said approximately one. Now, and that, you know, I, I would believe that if you're talking a single say line. That, or a, Chris, Chris I'm going I'm to interrupt you just for a second. Say okay. that again because I got a digital blip on my end. Say that number again of your opinion. About one a week, you know, for, okay. for a single line. Now, when you, you start talking, you got a female line, let's say, that has two adult kittens with her. Well, they're going to have to kill almost three times that much. And uh, I think a lot of times in, in studies that I've seen, too, is a lot of times those female lines that have kittens will, will make multiple kills at one time. And there's there's no way they can eat it all, you know. So they're killing more than one a week. They're going to average more than one a week. So, you know, that that's the whole thing. Like in an area where I was at, let's say, you know, we started out, let's say we started out with 10 lines on that mountain. Well, in one a week, they'd be killing 520 deer in a year, and there probably weren't 520 deer in the whole mountain. So that, that could kind of tell you the impact that, you know, that many lines could have on a deer population right there. You know, it could be pretty major, you know. So, Would they feed on one deer all week? Or, or how long will they typically feed on a on a kill? It usually lasts them three or four days, you know. And mm. uh, once again, it's according to the time of the year. Like right now, you know, we're, you know, 105 degrees, and you know that meat's not going to last that long. And they won't eat. The lions I've seen, they'll they'll leave anything that starts to spoil and stink. You won't see a line. A lion's not going to come to it. You know, they won't eat it. So. Mm. In real warm weather like this, you know it's going to be spoiling a lot quicker. So, what uh, cleans yeah, it, it just, up then? Uh, coyotes mainly, and yeah, and, coyotes are uh, real good at finding coyotes. And in this country, I was going to say bear, but there's just not that many bear in this country. Right. So that right. that's not something here. But there's tons of coyotes. So yeah, they'll, they'll sure. clean line kills up. Right. Well, how far will a lion travel typically? Oh, let's say you're on your cold trail in this lion. And he's been he's gone through the country. Uh, how uh, how far would he typically travel in a day? Do you think? Well, once again, you know, it's just according to the individual line. Now, yeah. I you know, I had one line, you know, a real quick little story north of me here that I trailed three days straight before I caught up to him, and each day he was doing seven eight miles a day, and uh, you know, and he just made a huge big loop through all all the country north of me and finally we caught up to him on the third day and i mean we covered well over 20 miles you know in three days and uh so the tom lines you know usually you get on a female i always look at it like you get on a female line and chances are you'll catch her faster 
but you know, cause she's not, she, they don't travel as far, but at the same time, they don't leave as much scent either. And you get on a tom line and it's scratching and marking his territory. And, uh, I mean, you could just, the track could just go on and on forever. And, you know, a lot of them will just play, they'll just out travel you, you know, you, you'll trail them so far and it'd be getting dark and you think, well, if I'm going to make it back to my truck before dark, I kind of turn around and go back, you know? So it's just, uh, I'd say, you know, if a line that's not on a kill, a tom line that's not, doesn't have a kill and he's out scratching mark in his country, you know, you're looking probably seven, eight miles a night, something like that. Wow. Normally, you know. Well, what's the breeding season for lions? Most of them are, uh, uh, after the first of the year, you know, uh, so that their kittens are born in the springtime. What's but, the uh, gestation period? Typically uh, 90 days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, uh, that's been a big argument here in Arizona, uh, when all the kittens are born or stuff like that. But, uh, I've taken, I've caught little dinky kittens at every month of the year. So it's not a set, uh, it's not a set month. They can have kittens anytime, you know, but uh, the majority of them are born, you know, and I'm sure it's, an, you know, a natural thing to coincide with, you know, when uh, deer fawns are born and stuff like that, you know, when there's more, more uh, game, there's more deer for the females to, to kill to feed their kittens, you know, in the early spring, you know, so that's when most of them are born. But they can well, be born any time of the year, you know. Right. Well, uh, what do you think the ratio runs generally, toms to females, or is that does that vary? Yeah, it varies. You know, I think in, a, in, a, in an area that's not hunted, you're looking at uh, three to four females to every tom, you know. But you got, you know, where they're, you know, pretty much everywhere in Arizona gets hunted. So, you know, the females females are being taken or whatever. And so that ratio just, you know, it, you can't really say for sure what it would normally be, but um, in some studies they've done where they've closed areas down, it seems to be about three to four females to each tom. Well, let's talk about the dogs a little bit more. What's your all time favorite lion hound, Chris? That, that I've owned personally? That you've, yeah, that you've owned personally. Well, I've got probably three of them, but uh, my okay. spike dog that I've I've mentioned on Facebook is is one of my little blue tick dog, and then uh, uh, my Bonaparte dog was a red tick hound, and uh, my original scout dog was a red and white hound that looks like he he looked like my current scout scout dog that is his son, and uh, probably those three. And you what know, separated and, uh, what separated them? Now you talked about Beauregard, I think, as being that real fast trailer, Bonaparte. right? Bonaparte. Yeah, all three, all three of those were really super fast trailing dogs. All three of them were, and uh, they would all three leave, just leave other dogs behind, you know, on a track. And they were all three the kind of dogs that, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I, I forgot to say this, that uh, about traits that I don't like to see in dogs. And one of those traits is a dog that doesn't bark when it strikes a track or doesn't bark much on track. And uh, and the one reason is that if you get a dog that's really quick and fast on a track they'll leave your other dogs you know they'll just leave if they say say you've made a, a big lose here and you're sitting on your horse and you know everybody's looping around you and looking 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 well all of a sudden you see you know Bonaparte or whoever in this case it's uh Brownie's a dog that I have that's pretty silent on track and you'll see her going over a ridge a half a mile away 
you know, she hasn't barked, so nobody knows she has the track, and she's going, she's gone, you know. So then you got to go try to catch up to her. So that's that's another trait that I I don't like in dogs is is a dog that's pretty silent. So, but uh, you know, uh, all three. I, of the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I have oh, I just a question, say all but three, it'll wait. <laughs> I just I just gonna say all three of those dogs were super fast on track. I mean, really, really fast. They caught a lot of lines because they they could just work a lose real quick. They were real good on a backtracking line. You know, they could figure a line that was pulling tricks on them and stuff and straighten it out and go and catch it. So that's the reason all three of those really stand out in my mind. I got you. Well, my experience with bear dogs has been similar to that. And, uh, you know, back east, uh, dogs that could cold trail a track that was made the day before or what the night before. And we maybe struck this track at 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And those dogs would take the scent off the brush and so forth and, and cold trail with their head up, always reaching out there on that track, you know, with the ones that, that you could get that bear jumped and treed before it got yeah. too too dark to hunt, you know. So that was so it's it's interesting to hear you say uh uh, you know, that you like that kind of trailing dog because that's what my father bred for in his bear dogs that he bred for over 50 years were those dogs that really punched a track, hot or cold, yeah. really, you know, reaching for it, may, uh, running to catch, you know, whether it was yeah. cold or hot. Oh, old. yeah. Yeah. That's well, what I that's... tell people. You got to have a dog that'll push. They got to push a track or you just ain't, you know, especially in this desert country. I, I believe you know, and I, I made this statement before that in desert country, especially if you get a line that gets out in front of the dogs and say gets at a, a good trot in front of dogs and you don't have dogs that are really push to catch up to that line, you'll never catch it. It won't. That line won't stop. You know, so you've sure. got to have dogs that will push that push that line. Sure. And uh, so, yeah. Well, there's a couple other areas that I want to approach unless Chris has got something right here. No, I'm listening and learning. <laughs> well, the one thing I wanted to ask you uh, uh, about your horses, uh, do you breed these horses yourself? Uh, what do you look for in a good lion horse? No, actually, all three of these horses are Mustang horses that came off the range. All three of them were captured and brought in and broke. And uh, th that's the three I have. And uh, I like horses with, you know, real heavy boned horses with big feet on them. And, um, you know, I, you know, a lot of horses that are bred today or, you know, fine boned horses or whatever, I don't think can take the everyday pounding in these rocks and stuff is too hard on their, their tendons and stuff. I like the ones that are real heavy boned and got real big feet on them. And, uh, these Mustangs just seem to be naturally really tough horses. Uh, people tell me I'm riding a bunch of mutts and that is what I'm riding <laughs> a bunch of mutts, you know, it is exactly are they, what are I they, got, uh... but are they a little smaller horse, Chris? Or no, actually, you know. the the three I have are all. Uh, I have one that's, you know, I know people look at the Mustang horses. Most of them are smaller horses. Let's say fourteen mm -hmm. hand horses, and right. I've got one that's like that, but he's real wide and real. I mean, muscular. Yep. I mean, and he can really travel. And then the other two I have are over fifteen hands. They're bigger horses. Wow. And, yeah, we uh, had a Mustang. We had a Mustang growing up. Uh, as a kid, we had a, a a Mustang we bought, and that was the toughest little horse I've ever ridden in my life. Yeah, they're just they're just naturally tough son of a guns, you know. And I yeah. think for the the hunting I do, you know, a lot of people like mules, but uh, 
And uh, I'm not a mule person. I don't get along with them for some reason or another. But but uh, these horses are probably as close as you can get to that. You know, them Mustang horses are as close as you can get to mule as far as the toughness. And they're just naturally good in the rocks. They, you know, uh, the three I have, the first line I went to put on them, they didn't, didn't even flinch. They don't care. You know, they pack real good. And, you know, so right. they're just good for this, you know, good for this line hunting business. Well, when it you takes, take uh, the, a... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go I was ahead. just going to say that it, it takes them a while. Everyone that I've gotten has hated dogs. So that's from the, <laughs> they, you know, and I guess it's a natural thing. You know, you're out on the range, you know, they look at them as coyotes, I guess, you know, but once they get used to the dogs, they don't, they don't pay any attention to them. But everyone I've gotten has hated dogs to begin with. So Do you that's, have that's any, the only problem I've had with them. Uh, reversely there, or conversely, I guess, do you have any problem with dogs not getting along with the horses? No, I, I, and part of that is I won't tolerate it. I won't allow, that's, I tell them that's not, the horses are not their business. And right. they learn that real quick. You leave the horses alone. And okay. so, yeah, they, uh, they get along fine. You know, they hunt real good with horses. And now I had a dog, uh, a little blue tick female that uh, I was hunting with a friend and, and uh, she had some horses she was breaking and this daggum horse stomped this blue tick female of mine and kicked her. And that horse, that dog was a little horse shy after that. And she would mm-hmm. go way around horses and stay away from them, but she had good reason <laughs> after getting stopped, you know, exactly. but, uh, but they, they do good around the horses. And like I say, they, they learn from an early age. They don't mess with my horses right. at all. Well, I hunted bear over in the Capitan Mountain area there, Lincoln National Forest in New Mexico one time uh, with Gary Washburn and and George Hobbs. And they put me on a horse they called Scout, and he had some Welsh pony in it. Had the big, thick neck and all. Do you have any experience with the? uh, He was a real sure-footed horse in the mountains. And... uh, he looked a little strange compared to the other horses. Uh, he was a paint <laughs> paint color horse, you know, had that gigantic neck. But uh, uh, he was a good one. I he, he I guess knew he had a rookie, and he was real good to me. So uh, I enjoyed riding Scout for sure. Yeah, I, I, I don't yeah. want to I don't want to offend anybody as far as horses are concerned, but. I think those crossed up horses like that with, you know, the Welsh pony or the Mustang or whatever, they're a lot better horses for this type of stuff. You know, they're not the horses you're going to be going to a roping on or whatever, you know, roping off of, but for this type of stuff, you know, uh, riding real rough country and stuff, they're just a lot better horses than the majority of the quarter horses and stuff people are breeding today. Like I said, I don't want to offend anybody, but you know, I just think they're better, you know, for that type of, for that type of work. Yeah, specialist, yeah. Exactly. Well, I want to ask you a question about lion meat, about eating lion. Do you eat it? Yeah, oh, yeah. It, it is, yeah. It's very good, yeah. yeah. Well, everyone tells me that, and I haven't tried it, and I want to. How do you prepare it? Well, I've done it different ways. I uh, um, Actually, the last line that I, I had, I ate some of. I had some fellas, some guys with me that, came to hunt and they wanted to do their own cooking. So we caught a line and they took the back straps off of it and they, they saturated it in milk for 24 hours. And then we ate it 
and it was darn good. It was real good, you know. And uh, so, you know, there's different ways to do it. It's like any other meat, you know, and it's really, you know, I know people eating a cat kind of bothers some people, but it's really good meat. Uh, I think it's better than deer meat, definitely. But uh, We've been doing it in Chinese restaurants back here for years. <laughs> oh, you're really going to get it. You're going to get it, pal. Well, uh, one, one of our listeners, Jonathan uh, Lesperance, uh, Chris, where is he in Arizona or Nevada? Nevada. Nevada, Nevada. okay. Mm-hmm. He yep. mentioned on social media I had posted something about eating line, and he said it was uh, very good and and reminded him of pork uh, so yeah yeah that's probably about the closest thing you could you could uh you know relate it to would be pork yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at least the he didn't say it tastes like chicken good. tastes like chicken yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well uh what about uh, i wanted to ask you about the weight on the lions in your area do you do you catch any what would be considered trophy lions, or is it kind of? I know when we had Calvin Redhouse on, he talked about the lions in his area probably not being as large as those that that are typically caught, you know, up north, say way up in British Columbia or something like that. So, uh, size wise or or trophy wise, uh, through uh, Boone and Crockett or whatever, uh, how do they they rate there in your area? Well, we're not real big here. Now, when when I worked, uh, did the work of the game of fish, I got a chance to actually do live weights on some lines. And um, the the biggest calm line, you know, they wanted me to bring the body in whole, so so they could weigh them. And the the biggest line they weighed was 148, which is a, a really big. That's a that's a big column for us, you know. And uh, once again, to Calvin's point, the further north you go, the heavier they're going to be. You know, and I, I think you'd you'd probably see that in mule deer also. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, most of the lines are caught during the winter up there, you know, when lines have their heaviest coat and they have the most fat built up on them to make it through the winter because there's a lot colder winters up there. So I think those lines are going to be, you know, 10% heavier or so, you know. And uh, so as far as skull size, uh, head size, now, a really good tom here will score 14, and Boone and Crockett's 15. So, as head size, I think they're a little smaller, you know. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and the minimum to make Arizona record book is 14. So, you know, we uh, a, a good mature tom here will make the Arizona record book, the 14. But, is there uh, any special commendation or contest or whatever they have annually for the biggest lion out there? No, not that I know of, no. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, another quick question, and then I want to ask you a little bit about any kind of organized uh, effort out there to preserve lion hunting for the future, and I'm sure Chris could address uh, maybe that better than I, but um, I w- wanted to ask you, if you're out there looking for lion sign, what are the telltale uh, signs be- besides just the size of the track that you're uh, seeing uh, a male versus a tom versus a female? What do you look for when you're reading sign? Well, the main thing I look for, not so you look for tracks, but uh, you, uh, you you look along the uh, rims, canyon bottoms, whatever, looking for scratches, you know, where uh, toms will mark their territory. 
gotcha. and uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you know what a scratch looks like or not, but uh, they uh, they use their back feet and they'll kick yeah. back and make a little mound, you know, right. like under trees and stuff. And uh, when you're looking for toms, that's probably the the fastest way to find if there's a tom in an area or not is to look for those scratches, and because they'll stay for months, you know. And you'll know, you know, whereas you, if you just got a rain, you know, the rain could have washed out any lion tracks you might see. Scratches will be there for months, you know, and you'll know there's right. a tom work in that area. Well, so that's, that's what that's, George Hobbs out in New Mexico showed me that uh, out there. I'd never seen any lion sign at all. Uh, and uh, it's pretty interesting to see. But, uh, yeah, awesome, awesome. Wild country wildcats and hounds what could be better than that right can't beat it <laughs> good horse yeah. to ride you really can't beat That's it right. <laughs> well what about the future of, exactly what about the future of lion hunting out there in arizona what do you think well you know the thing about uh politically uh animal rights tried to get uh uh lion hunting on the ballot here in arizona in 2018 and luckily they backed out and didn't get it on the ballot. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if, if they do come back and get it on the ballot, we're in a lot of trouble here. Uh, we probably won't be line hunting in Arizona anymore. And our, our main problem is we've got two huge population centers in Phoenix and Tucson, and uh, they hate line hunters. I mean, basically they hate all line, all, they hate all hunting, basically, you know. And if somebody like the Humane Society runs a good campaign against us, we're in a lot of trouble. You know, we probably won't be line hunting here anymore. And, Does uh, Arizona have a strong hound organization that's that's on point for that sort of stuff? No, unfortunately, we don't. We've got one, and I, you know, um, it ain't much. So, I, you know, that's what I say. I just, I just think that we're, you know, um, hound hunting is so unpopular. You know, I saw a thing recently in Utah, Utah of all states, where it's extremely unpopular in Utah. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how, you know, Arizona, where we have huge population centers that pretty well dictate, you know, politics in the whole state, Phoenix and Tucson decide the whole state of Arizona. I think we're in a lot of trouble, you know, but, uh. It's amazing we, to me uh, how big, big some of the counties in Arizona are. I mean, you look at. What's Flagstaff? Cochino County out there? Coconino. Yep. Yeah, Coconino County. I mean, that thing, that's like half the state of Indi Indiana. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's all based on population. You know, I often think what it would be like to be the sheriff of Coconino County, and and uh, I can't even imagine that. So what's, what's the uh, – nobody is, is – organizing or trying to get organized right now because they're going to come back they're going to the hsus just a lot of times they put things out there just as a trial run to see what they need to do to to armor up and come back the next round so what's your feelings on that well to your point yeah i i, I kind of half believe that's what they did this time they just wanted to feel things out because they put very little money into their campaign almost nothing yeah. and then right. they they backed out and just said, okay, you know, fine. You know, they walked away from it, but I, everybody I talked to believes the same as I do. They're going to come back. Right. And, 
I think what we needed to do, and it, we tried at one point, was to get a, uh, a ballot initiative deal to where it had to pass with the three-fourths majority on mm-hmm. wildlife issues. And we never got it done. Now, Utah did that, and that, that's probably going to help Utah for quite a while. But Arizona, we didn't do that. And I think the problem we're having, you know, if you look at the politics in Arizona right now, I don't think we could ever do that now. Because if you try to go through the legislature, our legislature is getting pretty close to 50-50, mm. Democrat, Republican. And they're not going to let something like that go. There's just no way in the world. Well, what I we think did- personally, I think that that would have been our only chance, personally. Mm. Uh, in Michigan in 1996, and we had Mike uh, Thorman on earlier with the Michigan Hunting Dog Federation, we faced a, a referendum on bear hunting and overbait. Uh, in other, other words, stop uh, bear hunting with hounds and stop bear hunting with bait. Uh, what we did is we countered with the, and it was called Proposition D, as in dog, and it was on the ballot. And so we countered with what we call Proposition G, uh, and uh, G for good. And the idea was uh, Proposition G said that the management of the wildlife resource would be under the charge of the experts, the people, the biologists with the Department of Natural Resources, and take a scientific approach rather than a legislative approach to regulating the wildlife resource. And we so we kind of countered when they came at us with the bill to stop our hound hunting. We countered with a bill to put the uh, management in the hands of the experts because we knew that they were going to be on our side because it makes sense, you know, to to manage the wildlife resource with the use of dogs. So maybe something like that could work in Arizona. But I think that the bottom line is there's going to have to be an organization and some hunters are going to have to step up and there's going to have to be some trips made to the Capitol and to lobby some of these uh, legislators and so forth. But, um, uh, it's a tough fight all over the United States. And that's one of the reasons that uh, Chris and I started this podcast. And perhaps the main reason is to try to create awareness of the situation in the different states that hound hunting, uh, whether you hunt beagles or uh, uh, rabbits with beagles or, or coyotes with foxhounds or, or coon or bear or mountain lion or wild hogs, and I could go on and on, you are under the gun. You are in, your sport is in peril. And if we don't step up and wake up and, and stand up, uh, we're going to, to lose this. Uh, and we've spent an hour and a half here talking about a wonderful sport, something that I, I certainly hope to do before I'm too old to enjoy it. I've never walked up to a tree or a bay uh, with a mountain lion. I've hunted virtually everything you can think of with hounds, but I want to do that. And it's good. And it's something that uh, every houndsman should be able to enjoy. So uh, I sure hope that some people out there in your part of the world, Chris, are listening 
and get a fire for this thing and say, you know what, we need to organize. We need to protect this thing. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. We've got the, uh, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce them because I'm a member of them, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mispronounce them. Arizonans for Wildlife Conservation, I believe, is the name of the, the group. And they're doing a lot of good work. I mean, don't let, don't get me wrong. They're doing a lot of good work. I'm just, where I'm afraid is that if it ever reaches the ballot, then we're done. You know, that's what I'm afraid of, if it ever gets that far. And this organization stop, helped stop it from getting to the uh, ballot by going to the legislature right before the uh, signature gathering process began for the Humane Society. And they made a few changes and made it more difficult for them. But I still believe that the Humane Society just didn't want to put the money into really into a big fight right now for some reason. I have no idea, but for some reason. And uh, as far as the uh, putting the uh, management of wildlife into the hands of the, in our case, the Arizona Game and Fish Department, we did that. Oh, man, I don't know. Time flies. It's probably been 10 years ago. We tried that about 10 years ago. We had it on the ballot. And it was turned down. And the the part that really got me now looking back on it is that our Arizona Game and Fish Department didn't support it. They didn't like it. And so, you know, when you got the Arizona Game and Fish Department, I don't know what they did. I don't know exactly what their thinking was. But when you got them saying, no, we don't want the power, well, then the public's going to say, well, you know, evidently, you know, we don't want to do this, you know. So they voted it down. Mm. And... To me, something like that would have would be would have been the way to go. And I've talked to a lot of guys that have said the same thing. And you know, but uh, I really believe, as far as going through our legislature, it's getting a little too late for that because of the fact that Arizona is going more and more liberal all the time. Our legislature is getting more and more liberal all the time. And you're just not going to, you know, when you got the Humane Society calling all them people and telling them don't vote for this, vote against it. Well, then. You're probably not going right. to be able to get that through the legislature. Well, for, for it's sure. getting tough, and, you, and you're right. You know, people are going to, you know, it's just when you listen to the logic of people in humane society, and you know, they don't, you know, they don't have any logic, basically. So, right. you know, well, those right. are the people that you're fighting. You know, so it, well, it, we it's going to be tougher and tougher. Right. Well, when lions start going into the subdivisions in in Phoenix and Tucson and picking up the little Yorkies and, and kitty cats and so forth, then maybe they'll get, uh, get the message. But, uh, well, I sure wish you, uh, good luck with that situation out there. We're, we're certainly going to spread the word as much as we can to the houndsmen across the country that, that they need to, to get busy, be aware, be proactive, not reactive. Um, Hey, once again, Chris, give us the website. Let's say that someone wants to come out and and do a lion hunt with you. What time of year is the best time? Uh, pretty much, I I schedule hunts from uh, October first through uh, the end of April. And uh, you know, people call me and say, "Hey, you know, what's the weather going to be like?" You know, well. That's six months from now. I don't know what to tell you, you know, <laughs> it, you just, you know, basically, you know, it's, it's, you have to just say, okay, what is my, what does my schedule allow, you know, and book a hunt and we'll go from there. And uh, really any of those, you know, anywhere in there is good. You know, it really is. I mean, 
You know, I, I can catch a line for somebody anywhere in that time frame. And uh, it is just a, a guess as the weather, you know. And I'll tell you what, this past year, our weather was so different than normal. I had a couple hunts planned for, uh, scheduled for October last year. And we basically got rained out the whole month of October. I never seen anything like it. Usually October is a nice, dry, you know, warm month in Arizona. But it just rained and rained and rained, you know, just kept raining on us. So it well, makes it tough. Steve, can I jump in? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I watched one of your videos on your website, and you said it was cold. You said, man, it's terrible cold. What is terrible yeah. cold for Kingman, Arizona? Well, terrible cold for us is anything below freezing. But um, <laughs> I think that I think I gave the temperature there, but I can't remember. it During that time, it was running about, uh, you know, a little under 20 most mornings, you know. And, yeah. And, and you know what I find, though, people that come from back east, they say it's a different kind of cold here. I don't know if they're drier than it's colder or exactly what it is. But uh, I've been colder in Bear Branch, cold. Indiana. I've been colder in Bear Branch, Indiana, and 30 degrees than I have been in, you know, like Condom, Montana, at minus 22. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. Just damp and nasty. Right. Well, uh, Chris, you uh, you also sell puppies from time to time. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I I, I do sell pups every now and then. Yeah. I see. Do you have any now? No, I, actually, I I had uh, I had three litters of puppies this year, and uh, sold them all except like two of them, and I uh, sold the rest of them, but uh, they're all gone. Usually, I breed in the springtime when. Uh, um, I'm pretty much done guiding hunts and stuff like that. Then, you know, then, and I don't like my females. I've got a lot of, a lot of really good female line hounds and I don't want to tie them up during the winter with puppies. So if I'm going to breed them, it's going to be when I'm pretty well done hunting right. or, you know, at least the serious hunting's over, you know, and the hunters are all done and stuff in the springtime. Sure. Do you ship at all? Do you ship? Yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've shipped them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, give us that website one more time. So that our okay, listeners know how to get in touch with you. Okay, it's uh, azlinehunts.com. Real simple, azlinehunts.com. Okay. And Easy all- to find. I found it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you've been a delightful guest. We have enjoyed so much talking with you today. Learned a lot of stuff about lion hunting. I'm sure uh, just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and, uh, but uh man uh, got my juices flowing for sure to get out there on one of those horses uh i guess uh, does uh riding that little uh mechanical horse in front of walmart does it will that help me uh get, get ready or do i need probably to get not <laughs> okay well we got a lot all these theme parks here in uh in florida with a lot of carousels and all that but anyway <laughs> it's been a it's been a great visit do you have anything that you'd like to add chris todd that we haven't discussed with you that that you'd like to mention before we wrap this up no not really i would just like for people to know that uh you know anybody listening that um uh, I, I didn't get a chance to say, or we didn't get that far to, to say that uh, I've done a lot of hunting in the snow and stuff like that. So um, I, I know what snow hunting is like. And, and uh, I, I, I dry ground line hunt on horseback and it's just two completely different hunts. I mean, you can go on all the snow hunts you want to go on and, 
come out here and hunt on horseback and dry ground and it's just completely different so um that's what i do it's uh, uh i love it it's 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 tough hunting if you're thinking about taking a taking a hunt here it it is a tough hunt it's not uh it's not easy i mean it you know uh it, it'll try you most of the time by the time you get here between getting sore and getting up in the morning and you know riding uh riding 20 miles following dogs and stuff but uh it, it's to me personally it's a lot more of a hunt than going out in the snow is it's a lot more of a hunt so um that's basically you know all i wanted to say you know it like i say that's what i'm all about the dry ground line hunting and and uh it's it's just a super great sport uh to me it's the best sport there is by far and uh, i wanted to say to you and chris thank you very much for allowing me to Try to talk a little bit about dry ground line hunting anyway. Thank you, guys. That's a pleasure. Pleasure. Well, it's been been our pleasure for sure, Chris, and I appreciate you coming on with us on short notice. And I know you've got a trip planned uh, out of state for a couple of weeks of hunting, uh, and I wish you great success and, and, and good luck out there. And uh, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast another day and we can share some of those great line hunting stories with you okay thanks a lot well steve you always wrap this thing up with your famous line let's have it well chris uh we're gonna turn loose on this lion here we've got this big tom scrape here that chris todd has showed us and uh when we cut these hounds loose you follow your hound and i'll follow mine